Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Okay, welcome back to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. I have a really exciting guest today, and I've been wanting to get him on this brand new show of mine for some time. He's a dear friend, uh, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a Baha'i visionary, uh, all-around great guy, and an immigrant, um, Payam Zamani. So let's welcome Payam Zamani to the show. Ah, Payam Zamani. I think that's a bad sign, Payam. We're starting the blog, and then a bird just flew into that window. Uh-oh. Did you see that? I, I heard it. I didn't see you it. heard that little thunk? He's fine. He flew in at about one and a half miles per hour. <laughs> so then he went and he's sitting on a branch. But I think your dog is happy down there. So, And we have pigs. You see our pigs down there? I did. I yeah. did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so welcome to the show, Payam. Thanks for, for coming on. And um, I'm intrigued by so many different aspects of your story. There's so many facets to you uh, as a just a dynamic human being who you really are one of those rare Baha'is that are completely inspired by your faith and it drives almost everything that you do. And uh, I, I admire that so much and, and really look up to so much that you've done. But your background is harrowing. I mean, you went through so much uh, as an immigrant refugee from Iran. Can you let the listeners know a little bit about what that experience was like? Well, I'm really glad to be um, on this podcast. And uh, Rain, you're really kind for everything that you said about me. And maybe you can keep going and I would love to just listen more to, <laughs> okay. to, to more of that. Pyle, <laughs> just he kidding. is an outrageously <laughs> handsome human being as well. Do oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's a podcast. <laughs> so you don't see the truth. Um, uh, yeah, I've, um, um, I came to the U.S. in uh, 88 after having um, escaped Iran as a 16-year-old in 87. So I think it'll be 29 years uh, this July 7th wow. uh, that I left Iran in the middle of the night and got through the border, made it to Pakistan, and something like 10 days later made it to Lahore, where I spent uh, one year of my life. Interesting one year. Uh, not one year that... for a 17-year-old Iranian boy in Lahore, Pakistan? Exactly. Well, I was 16 when I got there. I was 17 when I left. You know, it's interesting. It, it, it was a tough place to live. But it was a fun time. It was not, you know, I don't look back at it and think that it was, um, you know, it was a sad time. Uh, not at all. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're living in a town with 2,000 other Baha'i youth. That's what it was like. And uh, There were that many in Lahore at that time? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, you know, we had a great time being in Lahore. And we didn't go to school for a year. So it wasn't that bad. Fantastic. So what were the circumstances that prompted you and your family to leave Iran and, and what kind of... Uh, persecution did you experience? So um, I need to go back a few years to when I was 11. So um, actually even going back prior to that, my parents loved the idea of pioneering. So we lived in many places where there were very few or no Baha'is in Iran. And even in the middle of 70s, we went to India for a short period of time with the idea of living there and staying there. Um, we went back to Iran when we could not get uh, permanent residency from the Indian government. When I was 11 years old, uh, we moved to a town called Hashgird, which is about 75 kilometers east west of Tehran. And uh, we had lived there before in the 70s, before we had gone to India, and we owned a house, so we went back there after the revolution. Life was very tough in that town before the revolution, like imagine that every night they would break our windows. They would throw rocks at our home. Wow. They would beat my brother and sister when they would go to school. Um, but after the revolution, life even became much more difficult. More difficult now, than that. More difficult. And you wonder, why would you go back to that town? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then you got to talk to my parents about, of course, you know, their view that you 
Don't go places where it's easy to live. You don't run away from difficulties and challenges because you are Baha'i. You, you know, you, uh, you embrace, you know, you them, embrace them. Exactly. Part of the sacrifice of faith. Exactly. So um, in that town, I'm going to make a long story short. Basically, when I was 11, I was in my sixth grade, first uh, year of middle school. And um, every school had this individual who was responsible to make sure everybody was embracing Islam uh, after the revolution. Every every school had that kind of a person. And um, what's that job title? Is, I, you is know, I, I, Islam Islam police? Islam something like that. It's the in Farsi they call it Ershad. I don't know what it means. I think it means that you ensure that people are following the right path to God. Uh huh. It's and, like a guidance counselor, only it's uh, for religion. Yes. Now, this guy was not a mullah, so he wasn't, he didn't have a turban on and so on, but he would, he would be responsible for uh, the mass prayer on campus every day. Mm -hmm. And he would also give a sermon every day. Mm -hmm. And they would ask me and this other Baha'i boy to, uh, to join them. And we would say, well, we are Baha'is, we have our own prayers and, you know, we wouldn't join them. Now, having said that, I had won the award for memorizing the most uh, verses from Quran during this competition they had. Oh. So they had kind of a love-hate relationship with me. Mm -hmm. um, but anyhow, so one day during the sermon that they had, we heard that he told the kids, we're going to get rid of these Baha'i boys today. We're like, oh, great. Life has been not so good. We're not going to be even less popular come today. So when the school ended, um, we uh, saw about 100 kids with rocks and sticks waiting outside for us. As teachers were leaving, uh, driving away, we we're kind of like asking them, can you please get us out of here? And nobody would want to have anything to do with us for obvious reasons. Everybody left. It was us and this mob. And uh, finally, this friend of mine and I we said, okay, well, it's either now or an hour from now or whenever. If we don't go, they'll come to us. So we walked towards them and we had to go through them to get to our home, which was about a mile away, walking distance. Um, for about a mile, uh, we got beaten up pretty badly with rocks and sticks. Uh, worse than that, though, they spit on us. And mm -hmm. by the time we got home, I was drenched. I was wet head to toe oh, from spit. And uh, it was tough. I mean, it was tough. Uh, we, I mean, we, we were bloody. We had been up really badly. Frankly, I did not think we were going to survive it. Uh, I don't know how we survived it. Uh, I remember one, uh, during this, uh, I guess, march of death, um, uh, one of them picked a big rock to throw uh, at my head. For whatever reason, it did not hit me. Hit another guy who fell. I don't know what happened to him, but, uh, I mean, it was tough, you know, was, we finally made it home and, um, I was upset. Um, I was upset at what these kids had done. How old were you again? 11. Wow. My son's age. Yeah. Wow. My daughter's also 11. So, um, I, you know, it's just hard for, I think, an 11 year old to truly understand why people would treat you this way, just because you believe in a different religion. So that was the last day I went to that school. Um, well, they expelled us from school and they were very clear that we wanted to kill them. We couldn't, so they, they should not come back to this school. And uh, that night, I did not sleep in our house. My parents were worried that they would come for us. So um, I was moved to Tehran and my parents had, had me go to Tehran. And my sister uh, lived in Tehran. She was married and I lived with her for the next two years until my parents sold their house, moved to Shiraz, and I moved to Shiraz and joined them. We moved to Shiraz a month after they had murdered 10 Baha'i girls. Mm. And we ended up not knowing, bought a house in a neighborhood that they had just burned down all Baha'i homes. Mm. 
So we did not choose a real estate uh, acquisition very carefully. I guess my parents had not. We ended up living in an area uh, of town um, that was not that was not very friendly to Baha'is. But all in all, I did not have a very difficult time going to school in Shiraz. This was all after the revolution. Yes, yes. In yeah. nineteen. 19- 81 is when I was expelled from school. And in 1983, we moved to Shiraz. So it sounds like there was a lot of prejudice against Baha'is before the revolution. But after the revolution, it was sanctioned and encouraged and a kind of more of a mob mentality was fostered. Would you say that that's true against the Baha'is? And I wonder, too, if a lot of the Muslim people in the um, in Iran were kind of scared um, being under this you know, this really violent theocracy. I think uh, you're right. Uh, Here's the interesting thing. Um, When a a lot of um, Persian immigrants that we meet uh, outside of Iran, they've come from Tehran. And most of them, they've come from northern Tehran. Life there is fundamentally different than where overwhelming majority of Iranians live. Mm-hmm. That's where we lived, where overwhelming majority of Iranians live. We did not. So you're saying that most refugees to the United States after the revolution that are Iranian came from a certain area of Tehran. It would be like people from suburban Los Angeles all leaving, but that's not what life is like in the majority of the United States. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Overwhelming majority of Iranians live southern part of Tehran. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they're not necessarily well-to-do, or they live outside of Iran. So imagine 70-some-odd percent or 80 percent. And um, so once you leave that part of Iran, think of it as a green zone in Baghdad, mm-hmm. you leave, uh, life is very different, and people treat minorities a lot worse oh. than they do in Tehran. I mean, Tehran people are more educated. They are So in rural Iran, it's even worse treatment for Baha'is, and even in, in smaller medium and smaller sized towns. Absolutely. Mm. Now, and and frankly, my parents wanted us to live in places uh, that we would uh, would be able to teach the faith. I mean, a lot of these places that we lived, there were no other Baha'is. So how would you teach the faith in a place where they were so prejudiced against Baha'is? Frankly, through your action. Uh, You Mm -hmm. wouldn't hold a fireside. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't really do that simply through your action and through uh, service in the community yeah. uh, that you would do that. Great. So you went through, uh, fast forward, you went to Lahore mm-hmm. and then where did you come in the United States and what was that like, culture shock like for you? Hmm. Um, uh, there was a big culture shock. Um, I had a cousin here in the U.S. in California, so I was excited. I was going to California uh, now, he, were you were, were you a wealthy refugee family, or did you have a lot of stuff, or, or not so much? No, uh, we, uh, my brother and I, we came to the U.S. at the same time, and together we had seventy five dollars in our pocket. And how old were you again? I was seventeen at the time, and my brother was twenty three. Uh huh. Wow. And um, and the money we had uh, was sent to us by our twenty one year old cousin uh-huh. from the U.S who was waiting for us at San Francisco airport. Okay. And um, uh, he picked us up June 20th, 1988. And uh, we went to Modesto. That's where he lived, Modesto, California. Not exactly what I had in mind when I thought about California so or tell, the United tell, States. Tell the listeners who don't know about Modesto a little bit about it. It's far, farming community, mostly Hispanic, right? Exactly. Farming community. You're right. Absolutely Hispanic. I would say a little bit of a rough town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is, uh, it's a good town. People are, people are, you know, beautiful, loving and, and all in all, I had a great experience living there. Uh, but it's just not the kinds of, the kind of city I had in mind when I thought about the U.S. I thought New York. I thought San Francisco, no Los one, Angeles. No one thinks Modesto. <laughs> no, no one thinks Modesto. <laughs> But Modesto had some other interesting things like the, you know, uh, graffiti night, uh, you know, from the movie that was still going on every... You mean American graffiti? American graffiti. Oh, like drag, drag racing and, and kind of, what do they call that? And then just going up and cruising. down the street. Cruising. That's what I meant street. to say. Yeah, yeah. Cruising. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, so every Friday night, uh, there was cruising on McHenry Avenue. Yeah. And the first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. In this town, bumper to bumper traffic starting at 11 p.m. on a Friday night 
would go on to like 1 or 2 a.m. And uh, people had one purpose in mind, guys, collect as many phone numbers as you can. Sure. And um, so, you know, it, it, it was fun. I, I did not collect many phone numbers. I did not speak English. <laughs> <laughs> so... So that did not work. That is a culture yeah. shock from Lahore yeah. to Modesto and, and yeah. cruising night. That's fantastic. So you, you in, in my red pinto. In your red pinto. In my red pinto. Okay, good for you. And uh, what kind of jobs did you have? Uh, my first job, uh, I had many jobs, but and, and many times I had uh, multiple jobs at the same time. Uh, uh, I worked at the pizza place. Yeah, uh, that was my first job. Uh, my day job at night, I worked at a cannery. SNW, um, and um, I did silk screen printing. I worked at an AMPM. Um, I did that's all fan- kinds of stuff. That's fantastic. Um, you started at, so, at the bottom. And did you experience, so there's a lot of talk about immigration now mm-hmm. in the current political climate. What was that experience like being an immigrant in the United States? Did you experience a lot of prejudice? I mean, there are obviously a lot of Hispanic, Latin, Mexican, Central American immigrants in Modesto. Um, did you get mistaken for being Latin American at all? Or um, wh- what was that like? Um, no, I was never mistaken. I don't, actually, that's a good question. I don't know why, maybe my accent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, um, you know, it's interesting. Truth to be told, I know that there were times I experienced prejudice, but I never saw it. Mm. And you got to keep in mind, I experienced a lot more prejudice in Iran than I did right. in Modesto. So it was a cakewalk. It was a cakewalk. If people made fun of your accent or spurned you or something, you're like, hey, at least they're not spitting on me and throwing rocks at me. <laughs> That's it. And yeah. if they did, there was a police to go to. Yeah. So, yeah. so no, I mean, life was good. I, I did not really have That's any right. complaint. I enjoyed living in Modesto. So how did you... You're you're an amazing entrepreneur. How does a kid who's making pizzas and doing silk screening, working at AMPM Mini Mart in Modesto, go from that to owning very large, successful uh, companies and startups in the Bay Area? What is just talk me through that? What's mm-hmm. the what's the what's the four minute version of that story? So my, I think a lot of it has to do with what as a Baha'i I went through in Iran, that all Baha'is who work for the government and many other major companies, they lost their jobs uh, post-revolution because of the religion. So uh, I remember my father, you know, encouraging us uh, to be entrepreneurs as we were growing up. And my parents, you know, they, 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 they were both nurses at some point, and my dad had different kinds of administrative jobs at hospitals. Um, and uh, they, they thought it would be great if we would have our own businesses. Uh, so we wouldn't be working for the government and mm-hmm. as a result being, you know, at their mercy. Um, so I think that was pretty much a foregone conclusion. The question was for me, am I going to potentially go into medicine as a lot of Persian kids did go uh, down that path or would I own my own business? And I ultimately, I came to the conclusion that I want to own my own business and I did not want to go into medicine. Frankly, I was worried that I would want to make money. And uh, I thought that being a doctor was not, I I did not want to be a doctor who thought about making money as kind of like one of the primary reasons that I had chosen that profession. Mm -hmm. So I chose not to go into that field. Um, In 1994, I graduated from UC Davis and my brother graduated from Chico State. Um, I went to a better school, (laughs) but he had a good idea, uh, which the idea was, uh, let's start a business on the internet about cars, helping people buy a car, starting their research online and hopefully get connected to a car dealer online. That was in 1994 when, you know, Yahoo and a couple other companies had started, but there was really nobody else. That's when you got those discs in the mail from AOL saying like, pay $20 a month for your email account. That's right. Yeah that we would hang them from trees so birds would not eat our cherries. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, uh, so that was the beginning. And frankly, we did that as as enthusiasts more than anything else, not knowing that we had thought about a big idea. We had no idea, frankly. I mean, we wanted to build that. We thought maybe we can pay the bills building that business, but we never thought uh, that it would become a really huge business. And uh, we happened to be at the right place at the right time. What was the name of the 
the domain name? Uh, the company was called autoweb.com, mm-hmm. which frankly, if I could go back in time, I would just buy domains. Why build a company? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it was funny. We could have bought cars.com, autos.com. We chose autoweb.com, which mm-hmm. probably was a less valuable domain name. They're right, all right. available. Uh, but we built that, you know, just, it was tough. I mean, we just learned as we went. And I would uh, listen to Anthony Robbins, uh, Wayne Dyer, and so on. Self-help, motivational speakers. Zig Ziglar. And I would just, you know, pump myself up and, uh, you know, get out there and go to a car dealer and try to sell them with my broken English. Mm-hmm. And um, it was fun. We, we had a great time building that business. And it doesn't matter even if you're more successful successful in life later on, I think the experiences you have building a business for the first time, regardless of how well you do, it's just something you cannot repeat. And that was a lot of fun. I, I always, um, you know, in, in, in my book, it's so much about those, those hard years and the years mm-hmm. of struggle. Mm-hmm. So when you're rewarded after all those hard years of work, it's, it's so much sweeter than if, it, if you kind of stumble into great success. Yeah. Uh, right away. And that's where you're, that's where the, the richness of your life is, as in, as in the struggle. You know, uh, one of my uh, best friends, he owns a winery and, uh, I'm not going to tell the brand, uh, because it's a very well-known brand and he wouldn't want me to probably tell this story, but we were so poor, uh, as we were trying to sell our product during the auto web days, we would say at Motel 6 when you're on the road, we would share a bed. And, uh, but absolutely. I mean, those are, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you don't have the money, you do whatever you have to do. You sleep on the floor, one person takes the bed or whatever. But the idea is that you make it through those rough days. And, um, you know, as a result, I think you're better off, not, not just because of the money you end up making, hopefully if you're successful, but I think the character you build and the hardship you get used to. And how was your faith through this time? Um, by that, you mean, if I was, yeah, uh, was were you, 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 you were a steadfast Baha'i during all of this. Did you hold the, did you pray a lot and hold Baha'u'llah close to you and keep your Baha'i principles uh, in front of you during this time? Did you have some, some rocky times where you doubted your faith? Um, I did not have rocky times. I know a lot of youth do. I never did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I never doubted my faith. There were times that I was probably uh, less involved, uh, you know, um, uh, than, than other times, but, uh, no, I was always, you know, I, I tried to mm-hmm. be, tried my best to be a good Baha'i and I'm sure I failed at all the time, but I, I, I did try. Well, I, cause fast forwarding, I, when I first met you, yeah. uh, was on a trip to Haiti. Remember we were yeah, uh, yeah. both working for Mona foundation. You were on the board of Mona foundation and I was the spokesperson and just getting going yeah. there. And, um, uh, that was such a fun trip, getting to see those schools and, and visit the schools the Mona Foundation supported and visiting the Baha'is in Haiti. Um, but you were, at the time, you had this company, Reply.com, which you sold briefly, then bought back now. And the interesting thing to me is that you've reformatted Reply.com into a, a, a very different company uh, that is kind of Baha'i-inspired. So... Tell, tell the listeners about that. I think I had an epiphany a few years ago. Um, I was at uh, the Association for Baha'i Studies conference a few years ago in Irvine, California, and you spoke there. And uh, also Laylee Miller spoke there. And um, it wasn't your speech, unfortunately, but it was Laylee's. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. It was Laylee's that no comment. inspired me. Um, and I remember I, I turned to my wife, Guya, and I said that I'm jealous. And she said, what about? I said that Laylee's day job is service. Mm. And I wish I could say that I go to work every day and what I do is service. Mm-hmm. And we know that in the Baha'i faith, we say that work offered in the spirit of service is worship. But really, let's think about it. You know, if I'm a physician, I'm trying to charge my insurance as much as I can. Is that really worship? If I'm a hedge fund manager in New York, is that really worship? I mean, I don't know, maybe, but I- I've got my doubts. Mm-hmm. And same thing with my job. If I'm enabling Ford Motor Company to do online advertising more efficiently, 
um, maybe sending emails to your inbox a little bit easier, mm-hmm. is that worship. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity that I've had uh, in the last year and a half uh, with my company that since acquiring it from the investors, I changed the name to One Planet uh, Ops. Um, I've had the opportunity to try to go one step at a time and see how we can uh, bring about, instill some of the Baha'i principles into a for-profit organization. We are far from where I want to be, but we are trying very hard to instill those principles. So you have a lot of different subdivisions of One Planet Ops, uh, your Baha'i-inspired umbrella company. One of them is still doing online marketing and advertising, especially for car sales. Um, uh, what other lines of work does One Planet Ops do? Our primary source of revenue is a marketplace uh, that makes it easier for businesses in the automotive industry, real estate, and home improvement to do marketing online. Mm-hmm. So large or small, like every car maker in the U.S. buys traffic from us. We own a directory called Merchant Circle, and we own a bunch of other smaller websites. Mm-hmm. We also do incubation of new ideas. Uh, We are about to launch an online home improvement service, social mobile solution called contractors.com that will change the way that people connect to contractors, hopefully. Uh, We do enjoy the best thing. That could only be a positive thing. I know, we really have to screw up to make it, you know, (laughs) negative. And then we do angel investing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But everything that we do uh, has to somehow benefit the world around us. Will you invest in this Baha'i blogcast, please? I need $100,000 to finish this podcast. Uh, is it for profit? Shake if on. it's not, then it's not an investment. I'll shake your hand, but it's not an investment. Then it's a, it's a contribution, which we do. <laughs> so <laughs> let's have that conversation. How about you buy me a latte? Right. There you go. Um, so what does that mean? This, you've got One Planet Ops, this company that does all of these different things. And it's Baha'i, what do you say? It's Baha'i inspired. It's driven by Baha'i principles. What does that look like? I know that you you have a, a hundred employees, right? Yes, and a lot of Baha'is work for you. True, that's right. Yes, um, and but what what specifically does that work look like? Is it Baha'i holidays? Is it uh, hakukula for the company? Do you pray at staff meetings? I mean, how does how, what does it look like? Uh, all good questions, and and I'm trying to answer a lot of those every day and try to figure it out. But um, uh, the company does contribute directly um, uh, to, to the faith. But uh, beyond that, we take Nowruz as one Baha'i holy day uh, that as a company uh, we take off. So I love the fact that my employees don't work that day and they, they tell the families they're not working because of Baha'i holy day. Mm-hmm. Um, we may increase the number of Baha'i holy days as a company will take off. Uh, we have not made that decision yet. We do a ref- uh, we have a company meeting, all offices all over the world. Uh, they get together via uh, video conference or in person. And uh, one of the things that we do is that we share what we call a reflection. And that uh, could be from the Baha'i writings if it's shared by one of the Baha'i employees. Uh, and it could be about any topic. Uh, and even, you know, others may share other topics, but it's supposed to be something that is a bit spiritual, something that... Uh, touches do you do it by email or do you all meet and and have the reflection? We meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is in person and those who are not there. So it's almost a meditation. It could be. Not, you know, like, you know, recently somebody's uh, reflection was about Prince. And that's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. We're not going to tell them not to do it about that. Uh, but it could be, you know, the tablet by Abdul Baha to live the life. And mm-hmm. that is absolutely fine too. So we give the freedom to people, uh, but to, to focus on something that goes beyond the everyday business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're very vocal about the fact that your company is, is for-profit. And how do you balance for-profit company with being a Baha'i pro- uh, company? I know that you're very influenced by the, the writings of uh, Larry Miller, who's Laley miller Moreau's uh, dad, about kind of Baha'i spiritual capitalism. What, what have you learned from him? Yeah, you know, he has a wonderful book, uh, uh, Spiritual Enterprise. Those who have visited me in my office, they, you know that I have uh, many copies of that book and you get that as a gift from me. And um, it's a book that allows you to put Baha'i teachings into practice. 
And I think as Baha'is, a lot of us have these questions that we have these beautiful teachings, but how can I actually put it to work in my everyday job? And I think this book does a very good job of, of helping you, guiding you doing so. What are some of the principles of it? Well, you know, about profit sharing is a, is a big one. One of the things that I did after reading uh, Larry Miller's book was that I decided to go against what the Silicon Valley does, which is shares ownership in a company in the form of stock options. I decided to share profits, which is what Abdul Baha talks about and this book certainly talks about. And um, it turned out to be the best thing we could have done. People want stock options so they can make some extra money. The problem is that overwhelming majority of the companies in Silicon Valley never have that exit, whether it's sale or an IPO. So those stock options rarely become worth anything. So it's almost like a hope that never materializes. But profits, if as a company, all of you are focusing on the fundamentals of the business, that can materialize every single month. So not the employees- So in terms of ownership, you're the 100% owner and then you opt to share your profits with your employees under a Baha'i standard. That's right. So every employee of one planet every month gets a profit check. Of course, if you're profitable. If we're not, they won't. Do they get a different percentage of that profit depending on their, you know, the, the, the guy sweeping the floors doesn't, does he get as much of a share of the profit as the guy who's head of marketing? Their shares are calculated based on their salary. Mm-hmm. So if you have a higher salary, you get a higher share of the profits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, my next question is, can I have a job? You absolutely can have a job, whether you qualify for. Do you need someone to sweep the floors? Well, we need a spokesperson, and I think you know a few things about that. That I can do. <laughs> that I can do. Um, Actually, I was thinking about a good contractor, bad contractor. I thought for contractors.com, you could be the bad contractor. Ah, that's, that's a role I was born to play. <laughs> so, I've had some experience with some bad contractors, too. And one of your side enterprises... Uh, uh, I love and is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and that is Baha'iTeachings.org. Um, it's org, right? Not That's right. Org. Org. So you founded kind of the uh, founded and funded and, and created the most popular um, and really exciting and up-to-date web presence for people to learn about the Baha'i faith. You know, I don't know if it's the most popular or not because I don't know what's the traffic and information, you know, the data from from many other sites. Well, how many visitors do you guys get a month? About 60,000 visitors a month, about 300,000 fans in social media. Um, But there are many other great ones, including Baha'i Blog, of course, which is one that we learn a lot from. Um, So... The, the reason that I started, and sorry, I'm not sure if that's what you asked, but yeah, I'm no, going to answer anyway. Just dive in. So uh, the reason that I wanted to start uh, with my wife, Guya, BahaiTeachings.org, was because I wanted us to teach the faith. And um, the problem was that I didn't know how best I can use my skills to work. And um, until... I guess one day it occurred to me that, look, we're doing all these different things with my businesses to try to bring traffic, consumer traffic to our websites. And we did a lot of search engine optimization as part of the work that we did in search engine marketing. And um, I thought that what if uh, we could have so much content about the Baha'i faith, about the kinds of topics that seekers are likely to search for when they're seeking. Mm -hmm. So they would be able to um, come across Baha'i content even when they have not heard of the Baha'i faith because majority of people have not heard of it and they're not going to include the term Baha'i in their search. So I just wanted that to be the case. And I figured, I just made up this number in my mind, that there's probably about 10,000 articles that if you publish, we're going to be able to accomplish that. And I just did the math on how many years will it take, how we have to ramp it up. And um, so we started building. And the idea was to build a shell of a website and then invite all kinds of people who may not be an, a scholar in the Baha'i faith, but may know one subject really well. Right. Get them to write one article or maybe five articles. And there are some scholars who will write a lot more. But I wanted that 19-year-old to write about whatever he or she was crazy about. And I studied that in the faith and knew the teachings about that one subject. So now... What's, an, have, exa- what's an example of that? Uh, let's say that 
you are a PhD student and you are doing stem cell research. How do you reconcile that with spiritual teachings? Mm-hmm. And I would love to read that. I, I don't think we have an article on that subject yet, but I would love to read it. Right. You know, and that, kind of like Ted does that, does a very good job. With Is there that. an example of one that has been published? Of, uh, that's an interesting kind of niche area of study that's been explored from a Baha'i perspective. I mean, I, I, it, there are many of them. One that I shared with you earlier, that's not necessarily uh, down that path, but miscarriage that, uh, uh, you know, a Baha'i... Miscarriage. R- yeah, mm-hmm. miscarriage. Mm-hmm. It's a Baha'i writing an article about miscarriage because she went through that and then mm. studied, you know, the Baha'i teachings about that experience and um, wrote an article about that, which has touched so many people. But... You know, that is really what you're talking about. That one person can do a great job writing one article. I may or may not be able to give a one-hour keynote about anything, but I may be able to write, you know, 500 words about the subject I'm really crazy about. Mm, and that's, that's really what it's And about. you guys do two articles a day on Baha'i teachings. Two articles a day. We publish over 2,200 articles so far. Uh, about 160 writers from all over the world have participated so far uh, in writing for us. Some of my most favorite articles are about, uh, that were published a few years ago about international um, convention in Haifa, uh, the only international democratic election in the world and the process uh, and how that happens. And people who vote for these individuals, voting for people who are not nominated, nobody's campaigning. How do you vote? And how do you choose who to vote for? And those are some of the most fascinating articles that I think anyone has ever published uh, on this website. That's fantastic. And you've had some success at teaching the faith from Baha'i teachings. Um, Never enough. uh, But uh, we've had, uh, of course, we have tens of thousands of visitors to the website. And uh, we're blessed that the traffic is growing. um, And uh, we have had hundreds of uh, seekers who've reached out to us to be connected to the local communities where they reside. So... I could not be more grateful for every, the community we built of writers, of, of visitors, of seekers. It's been wonderful. It's been a great experience. And if people want to get involved with BahaiTeachings.org or want to write uh, or help out in some way, where can they contact? On BahaiTeachings.org, uh, just send us an email and um, I would love to connect with you and um, or just payam at BahaiTeachings.org. I would love to get you as a, you know, join us as a writer and uh, we need more help. That's great. And you have two girls, Sophie and Ellie, right? Sophie and Ella. Uh, Ella, sorry. Yeah. 12 and 11? No, 11 and, and 9, soon to be 10. So let's say 11 and 10. Oh, okay. 11 and 10. And how is, you're so busy in all of these different Baha'i inspired works. Um, what, uh, what's it like being a Baha'i parent? What do you worry about? What do you struggle with? And raising your daughters, what's what's your what are your priorities? Well, you know the priorities are, of course, making sure that our kids grow up uh, being, uh, you know, Baha'is that they will serve the world, they will uh, they will live a life that will make the world a better place. And I tell them all the time that I don't want you to be average. Uh, by that, what I mean is. I don't want you to have an average impact on the world or no impact. You got to have some level of impact, a meaningful life that that, that they got to live. So making sure that, you know, they're familiar with Baha'i teachings, um, uh, service, uh, you know, ultimately in this dispensation, it's about actions, not about words. So getting them involved in in, uh, Baha'i inspired service uh, is a big part of, you know, what my wife and I uh, try to focus on. At the end though, uh, their choices will determine, you know, what kind of life they will lead. We will, once they are 18 and a bit older, we'll provide advice and uh, we'll pray for them, but the rest will be up to them. Right. And, uh, and I should say a little bit about, uh, another one of your many facets that, uh, that's been very inspiring to me is when I first met you or you were, you were a board member on the Mona foundation and advisory work, board, member. advisory board member. And, you worked with them for, for years and Guya was on the board, your wife, and, and uh, you helped promote education and raise money for schools all over the world through Mona. And that's great. And now 
you're focusing your philanthropical work on um, Tahre Justice Foundation. I've already interviewed Laylee Millers. Um, and uh, what what has that been like? What have what have you learned, and and what do you get out of uh, being a board member on Tahare? So I I feel like my wishes are all coming true because I saw Laylee give that uh, speech at ABS, and uh, you know I told Guya that I'm jealous of the role that she has, mm-hmm. and um, so not only I was able to buy my company back and uh, rebrand it under one planet and instill some of the Baha'i principles and use this as my playground to figure out how we can do things better. But also then lately, I got to know her more at that conference. And uh, about a year later, she invited me to join the board at Tahrir Justice. And I love the organization uh, for many reasons. Uh, it's an extremely well-run organization, which um, is one thing to be nonprofit. It's another to be a nonprofit that's run better than for-profit. Mm. And when I go to the board meetings, you know, I, I get exposed to a level of, I think, expectation and professionality uh, that I can learn a lot from. And um, I feel like uh, it's an organization as a great steward of the money that's contributed to it. And the impact that it that it's had has been amazing. 19,000 women in the last 19 years have been uh, have been served by Tahrir Justice. Well, not and only as, that, but also the the laws that have been changed and the the impact in Washington D.C. Much exactly. I mean, 19,000 women have directly been able to gain the freedom because of Tahrir Justice's effort. On top of that, the laws that they've been able to influence and, and get them changed have probably affected millions and millions of people. So it's really a wonderful organization and, uh, you know, uh, founded in the name of, of course, a great heroine of the Baha'i faith. So I, I feel really privileged to be part I, of it. And I imagine it has a special resonance for you as an immigrant and that harrowing story that, that you had as an immigrant and so many of these women seeking asylum in the United States have gone through terrible persecution in their own countries and are yeah. have their own immigrant stories. Absolutely. And also as a father of two girls, uh, it you know, and the freedom that they have in this country and uh, being grateful for that. Uh, it definitely has special meaning. So what Baha'i books are you reading right now and how are they inspiring you? So I see the book, uh, The Secret of Divine Civilization, on your desk. And mm-hmm. I just recently finished that. I love that book. Mm-hmm. That when you think about Abdul Baha wrote that book, uh, in the 1800s about uh, Iran. and mm-hmm. But it's a book not about Iran and not about the 1800s. It's really about how world, you know, and other countries can be better managed. So I, I love that book. But the book I'm reading right now is The Priceless Pearl. And I love that book because um, the guardian of the faith, Shor Effendi, and everything that he went through uh, from the moment that he was uh, named the guardian and uh, just throughout his ministry, uh, his travels, it's really inspiring. And I think that um, it is through these stories that we can learn a lot about how we can potentially live a more Baha'i, uh, you know, life. Because it's one thing to read the teachings of the faith. But it's completely another when you read about how the guardian or Abu Baha lived their lives. And it's really helpful to see what kind of nuggets out of those I can take mm-hmm. and apply to my own life. And in my own small little, you know, meaningless uh, existence, maybe I can, you know, do a little bit better as a result of, you know, what I've just learned from what I've read. So I really like that. It, it helps me put things into work every day. Uh, that's great. I the early the stories around Shoghi Effendi when he was first appointed guardian and the fact that he essentially had this kind of almost nervous breakdown and went up so to, human it's so human yes. and he went up here's the center of um, the modern faith a worldwide mm-hmm. faith with you know at the time hundreds of thousands of adherents and he has a meltdown when he's given all that authority at the tender age of 23 or however old he was yeah. and going up to Switzerland to recover. And of course, the greatest holy leaf, Baha'u'llah's sister, 
kind of becoming the center of the covenant at that time for that uh, temporary time. But that is such a human story and so relatable. Like we've all gone through something like that and um, we can relate to what that would be like to have that enormous pressure put on your shoulders and to just be overwhelmed. We've all experienced overwhelm and, and collapse, whether it's in hard times in life or a divorce or um, uh, just difficulties in school or work or with family. And uh, I love the humanness of that aspect of the story. And my favorite part of it, and I, I tell this story to my son, Walter, about how when Shogi Effendi came back and they said, you know, you know, what happened and why are you back and what's going on? And and he said that that great quote is, uh, I... Uh, I fought with myself and I conquered myself. Am I saying it right? I think I'm saying it right. And I love that idea that um, his self, in this case, was a self of fear, of doubt. Um, and there's ego in fear and in doubt. Um, it's certainly not selfless service, but that was where his self was holding on. And he needed those all those months up in the Alps, mm -hmm. hiking mountains and praying and meditating and isolating. Again, a retreat to nature, just like, you know, Baha'u'llah took and so many prophets have taken to have conquered himself. And then he came back and boy, was he ready to go. Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, it also, uh, you know, a few years ago, I climbed Kilimanjaro. And my wife used to give me a hard time and say that there's so many mountains close by. Why do you have to go to Africa to climb a mountain? Now I can have a good excuse and say that, you know, <laughs> hey, well, look, you know. No, I mean, but I think there's something to be said about uh, nature and, you know, just taking the time to uh, be alone. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but I think those are some of the things that we can frankly learn that during our difficult times in life, um, you know, uh, looking back at some of these kinds of stories, I think uh, we see some of the patterns of what, you know, great people did and how they handle some of those challenges. And maybe we can learn a little bit from them and, uh, you know, come to terms with our own difficulties. But you're absolutely right. You know, when you read those stories that Shogun Penny would get up every morning and he would go on these hikes and he wouldn't be back till late in the evening. And many days he would just have one meal. That's all he could afford. That's mm -hmm. all he would have. I mean, those are really inspiring stories. Yeah. And what, um, what do you, what uh, Baha'i quote or teaching are you thinking about these days or pondering or what, what issue in your faith are you most struggling with or wrestling with right now? Good question. I cannot say that I've thought about that a whole lot, but uh, there is a quote that I recently uh, came across that talks about, uh, oh, I don't have it here with me and I'm going to, I'm not going to do a good job paraphrasing it, but uh, Mr. Frutan uh, has uh, said that this was uh, from Baha'u'llah and I'm sure if anywhere else it's been written or not, but talks about four qualities mm -hmm. that Baha'u'llah really appreciates yeah, that's one you of know, my individuals. It's one of my favorite quotes. I do youth classes on that. Oh, really? So yeah. you may remember, you know, the quote better than I do. Uh, I don't have it memorized. Uh, if you have it, bring it up. So... I know I have it too somewhere. We'll just edit this out. Okay, here it is. Uh, this is from Hannah the Cause, Ali Akbar Furatan. The blessed beauty often remarked, there are four qualities which I love to see manifested in people. First, enthusiasm and courage. Second, a face wreathed in smiles and a radiant countenance. Third, that they see all things with their own eyes and not through the eyes of others. Fourth, the ability to carry a task once begun through to its end. I love that. And uh, I mean, that's pretty comprehensive. And um, so recently I had this printed for all the employees at One Planet. They should all have in their cubes, you know, and with them. Because I think that this pretty much tells you everything that you're supposed to do in order to, yeah. you know, have the characteristics that are going to help you be successful in any aspects of your life. 
when I do the exercises, I always have the of the youth kind of try and guess what the four qualities would be, and they'll be like humility or pray a lot. Yeah, pray, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but these ones, there's so much about enthusiasm and courage, a face wreathed in smiles, seeing things for yourself, and and follow through, carrying things yes. through. Which, of course, Shogi Effendi had all of these absolutely. I mean, it was ridiculous. But that that last one, yes, that last one. Oh, that's a tough one to carry a task once begun through to its end. I know that's, that when that's we started Soul Pancake, we wanted to pull a plug so many times. And I would think about that quote, like, no, I need to... Keep going. I need to keep going. I need yeah. to follow this through. I need to see where this yeah. ends. And I'm, I'm going to be dogged in my determination. Yeah. I mean, didn't Abdul Baha also say that Baha'is should be charismatic? Did he? I don't know. Yeah. Is that a quote? And I, I, I you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to misspeak, but I'm 95% sure. I'm not going to say 99, 95% sure that okay. he did say that. Um, anyhow, but I think that goes back to, uh, you know, having a smile and, you know, being, uh, what's the, the beginning of this quote right now? That four qualities, uh, first enthusiasm and courage. I think that also somehow relates to being charismatic. But yeah, those that 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 quote I love mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like you know it can really be a way of life. And what are you struggling with most these days in terms of your your faith or to be a better Baha'i? Oh, uh, um, I can tell you what I worry about the most. I worry about uh, as a parent mm-hmm. uh, that you know with social media, I cannot say no to everything. I cannot say no to every form of social media forever. So. How do I, you know, allow my kids to have enough freedom to experiment, uh, but at the same time, um, protect them enough and instill the values that are really important to me and my wife? Yeah, that's, that's, those are, those are huge issues. I I feel, I feel the same way. How do you, how much do you protect and shield your children from all of that exposure and all of that kind of mindless distraction? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can't completely shield them from the outside world because they're going to have to learn how to navigate it as spiritual beings in a materialistic world. And they spend most of the day not with my wife and I. Mm-hmm. So if I think that I'm shielding them from those things, I'm kidding myself. I think the the real answer is how do we give them the tools, um, the values, so uh, they learn how to navigate these things themselves, but hopefully in a way that they understand what it is that they're doing and they're getting ex- exposed to and they can, tr- they can choose better. Great. Well, Payam Zamani, it's been uh, just an honor talking to you. Thanks for being on the Baha'i Blogcast. And you're writing a book. I am writing a book. So you're an inspiration. Well, okay, good. Following my footsteps. That's really exciting. Maybe it'll be done in a- another year or two. Uh, yeah, hopefully in the next 12 months it will be done. And it's been, it's been an interesting uh, experience. Essentially, you know, it's a bunch of different things. It's like everything else in my life is very chaotic. So it's about an immigrant story, uh, the story of also a Baha'i kid growing up in Iran and also an entrepreneur story. So put them all together, you'll get a chaotic thing out of it. Well, see, now that I brought it up, you've got to follow this task through to its end. Oh, I will. I will. I will not sell any, unfortunately, (laughs) but... (laughs) Put me down for 20 copies. Exactly. Thanks, Thanks, Payam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.